Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. Because we're coming to you with this story from outside of the Champagne region of France, it's simply a sparkling biographical discussion. The end. Let's talk about Madame Veuve Clicquot. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1805, in the United States, the territory of Louisiana was incorporated on the land purchased from the French just two years before. Sacagawea, with her infant son and a carrier, set out on an expedition to explore the territory led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. That same year, the expedition reached the Pacific Ocean in modern-day Oregon. Jane Austen celebrated her second birthday. Having recently been crowned emperor of the French, Napoleon Bonaparte continued to gobble up as much of Europe as possible for France and was crowned King of Italy. However, England wasn't having any part of him and were victorious against Napoleon's and the Spanish navies at the Battle of Trafalgar. Thomas Jefferson, the United States' third president, was inaugurated for his second term. Abolitionist and suffragist Amelia Grimke and Hans Christian Andersen were both born. Former British Prime Minister William Petty and former British General Charles Cornwallis both died. And in 1805, Barb Nicole Clicquot added Veuve to her name and took control of her life. Barb Nicole Ponsardin was born on December 16, 1777, in the city of Reims, France, spelled R-E-I-M-S, and pronounced, as far as we can tell, Reims. We are Americans. It's going to be a little off. <laughs> she was the oldest of the three children of Ponce Jean-Nicolas-Philippe Ponsardin, known as Nicolas, hooray, and his wife, taking a breath, Marie-Jean-Joseph-Clémentine Lettertre-Ouart-Ponsardin, known as Jean-Clémentine. I'm going to clap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just her last name alone, I was like, oh, I hope I don't have to say that. <laughs> Mama Jean-Clémentine's life, like so many women's in history, we sort of have to glean from the actions of her male relatives. But she's descended from wool merchants with a sideline in wine. Her grandfather had been given the 411 and how to make sparkling wine from a relative who was friends with the famous Dom Perignon. More on him later. Mama's grandpa had been credited with creating the very first sparkling wine, quote, house. They refer to them as houses. The language of a vigneron is very similar to fashion houses. They're both sort of cutthroat fashion-based art meets science and marketing. And he was giving the sparkling wine away as like an incentive for people to buy his wool products. Like they used to give the International Scout SUV away with purchase of a combine. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's impressive. Or they throw a little thing in a sticker in your Etsy package. I was going to say something in a cereal box, but I don't think they do that anymore. Bummer. The very first sparkling wine house, Maison Ruinard, was made in 1729. Her relatives were friends with the Sun King. Maison Ruinard is still in business, exclusively made from the Chardonnay grape. 
And the very cheapest retail I could find was $69 for a half bottle. And I will tell you that the sky is the limit on the Grand Cru. So if you ever get to taste Ruinar champagne, do not spit no matter what the guy tells you. Because (laughs) that will be an expensive expectoration. (laughs) I do have a question. When it's a half a bottle, is it called a split? No, a split is a quarter. Oh. A standard bottle is 750 milliliters. A half bottle, also known as a demi, is a half bottle. And a split is half of that or one quarter of a standard bottle. Or a serving of one. <laughs> Two if you're being, like, nice, I guess. <laughs> Mama's family were connected, wealthy, creative, and hustlers. Let's just say hustlers. And if this were an arranged marriage, which in this time, place, and social class it likely was, Papa's family chose well, a local family of note in a similar situation and mindset. And product. Nicolas' family was also in the woolen business. There's a lot of wool and a lot of wine being made in this region of France, and it's what we know as the Champagne region. Nicolas and his family had the connections and, let's say it again, hustle to be a part of a once in a lifetime event that happened just before Nicolas and Jean Clementine got married. The young Dauphin Louis, as they're all Louis, let's be specific, the 16th, had just succeeded his grandpapa king in 1774 and the following year came to Reims Cathedral to be crowned. Why Rance? Since the year 498, when Clovis, king of the Franks, was baptized as the first Catholic monarch of France, that has been given as the reason French kings were crowned at Reims. And kept at the cathedral was a vial of aromatic oils, and it was supposedly from God himself used to anoint the kings. So since 1027, All but two free-thinking kings had been crowned at the cathedral at Ras. That's just where you went to get it done. It's called the Holy Ampoula, or in French, Sainte Ampoule. Um, Ras Cathedral had it. Kings had to come to it. And here a king came. But before he came, orders went out from the design team. Deck the halls with bolts of fabric. La, 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 la. I wondered why you weren't singing it. Red fabric at that, they wanted everything covered in red for Louis XVI and his wife, Marie Antoinette. The king and his entourage traveled over several days very, very slowly because Reims is 80 miles from Paris, ending up in Reims where local dignitaries would greet the royal party. Papa was one of these dignitaries. Most citizens of rank would be expected to house members of the court, though the royal party itself was the property of of the archbishop's house. (laughs) Do you remember that Marie Antoinette was never crowned? And I don't know if you remember why, but let's just put it this way. In a G-rated podcast, lack of consummation meant they didn't want to set the seal on someone that might be sent home. Get used to that situation, people of France. It goes on a while. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no kidding. So inspired by his brush with royalty, Papa Nicolas began to build a home for his family. It was a mansion. It was in homage to royal palaces, and he called it Hotel Ponsardin. It took him 
years to work on. And I don't believe it was ever finished because, you know, those people, it's like, oh, wait, I want a fireplace here, you know, and they're changing everything up. I believe Papa Nicola was one of those people. Right. It's still there. It's now the city hall. If you would like to get an idea of scale and grandeur. I am unclear whether or not our Barb Nicole was born there. Uh, Timelines of construction and um, obstetrics being what they are, but she definitely grew up there. Bob Nicole arrived the same year that they got married, and then two other children were born, a son, Jean-Baptiste. And when Barb Nicole was about six, she had a sister named Clementine. Now, Papa was not exactly a self-made man, of course, but, you know, he stood on the shoulders of giants. But under his management, the family wool empire prospered. It was beginning to seem possible that he and his family could take that one last leap into the aristocracy. To that end, he sent his daughters to the convent school of St. Pierre les Dômes, where daughters of the aristocracy were sent. Here's a big name, a big alum name. Mary, Queen of Scots, attended there in the 1500s. Ooh, not super helpful because obviously she'd been gone for centuries. Also not very helpful because she didn't have the one attribute that a girl best friend at this school would be very valuable for. What might she have at home? A brother or two. Sometimes you have to play the long game. Unfortunately for France, Mother Nature was playing the long game too. The year Louis XVI was crowned, there had been a few years of poor harvest, to the point that our old friend, currently a diplomat, future American president, John Adams wrote, the country is a heap of ashes. Grass is scarcely to be seen. All sorts of grain is short, thin, pale, and feeble. I pity this people from my soul. The sky is still as clear, dry, and cold as ever. The flocks of sheep and herds of cattle stalk about the fields like droves of walking skeletons. I'm sorry to say that things did not get any better. As we approach the critical year of 1789, Mother Nature teed up and swung at France with everything she had. From long winters, including the coldest winter in recorded history, a volcano in Iceland that lowered the temperature even further, years of drought, hail, just when you thought you were going to get a crop, machinery was water-driven. So the colder the winter got, none of the machinery would work. The mills wouldn't work, nothing. Transportation was interrupted. Fruit trees were broken. Crops were starved out. There were large, large numbers of unemployed. The cities in particular were very, very hard hit. At the beginning of 1788, the average man spent 50% of his food budget on bread. By the beginning of 1789, it had risen to 90% of his food budget had to be spent on bread. That's just one year later. And of course, taxes didn't stop. All these people were being heavily taxed. Even you're having your bread and you're thinking of France, the wine merchants, they were taxed 40% of the value of the grapes just for using the village wine press. So it's not even, I mean, they have very little crop. Now they're taxed more than they're ever going to make. So we've covered this before. I mean, it was the first episode we did, but (laughs) this thing's reaching critical mass. And in Paris on July 14th, 1789, what happens? The storming of the Bastille and the city of Reims soon began to pop off as well. It's not very far away. A fast horse 
could have got the news there very, very quickly. The streets began to fill with rioters. Alarming stories began to circulate of atrocities committed in Paris against the nobility or, as no one was checking ID, against the well-dressed or the clergy, now seen as accessories to the murder and oppression of the common people. Now, Papat thought he'd been doing a good thing, but the literal last place you want to be right now is a convent full of nuns surrounded by the daughters of the nobility. According to the legend, Papa and Mama Ponsardin sent their dressmaker to Barb Nicole's school with a set of peasant clothes. The dressmaker went into the school. She snuck in. She found Barb Nicole. She dressed her down, took off her slippers and put her into peasant clothes and then snuck her out of the building, walking with her as a working class woman with her daughter is how it would have appeared. The dressmaker either hid Barb Nicole in her rooms until she was safe, or she scuttled her back to the Hotel Pont-Sardin. It's not sure. Evidence on all of this is sketchy. It may not even have been Barb Nicole that was in the school. It may have been her sister Clementine. We just don't know because during this time, no records are being kept. But that is really the main thing that we, quote, know about Barb Nicole's childhood, for in fact, an upper-class girl of the time was not supposed to appear in the news or perform tasks of daring do or, you know, like ideally she would emerge from the nursery straight into her husband's house. As much as we don't like that, that would have been the direct path. So this story really played to the cheap seats. This story later became the big deal and we'll tell you upon which deed this got hooked as a little backstory when we get a little bit later. But bad things were starting to happen. I'm very sorry to say, probably on the way back to the dressmaker's house, your only your only chance is, you know, look down, hold my hand, keep walking. I have to say, I think at this point, Papa was not even sure about his own chances. Right. I live in a fancy house. I mean, people know me, but is everyone from town? Is everyone local that is freaking out outside? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a very sketchy time. In fact, the cathedral was ransacked and the Saint Ampoule was taken out and publicly smashed in the street. I will say a sympathetic person spirited away a few pieces of glass and later mixed the sacred oil with more oil. I'm not really being heretical, but the only way I can think of is like a like a sourdough starter. Oh, um, yeah. So they recovered the spirit of the anointing right. oil. I do not know how Papa managed this feat, but he became a key figure in the post-revolution government, a man who had helped to crown a king who ranked high enough to host aristocratic court visitors, a man who had a thousand local people working for him, who made about a million dollars a year, equivalently, somehow threaded the needle. This bourgeoisie, the emerging middle class, seemed to be on top in this new world. Papa Nicola was able to join up with the local chapter of the Jacobins. And this isn't just another group of revolutionaries. This is the most radical, the most active, the most highly visible group of revolutionaries working to tear down the monarchy. In his heart, the man was actually a monarchist, but he is dressing literally in the red cap of these guys and fighting the revolution against the very people that he would like to support, but he can't. 
I'm sorry to say the Jacobins were the ones responsible for the reign of terror that is about to come over the next few years. The feeding of Madame Guillotine is what they called it. Papa kept his family out of sight, really ideally out of sight, out of mind of the mischief makers of town. So he pretended and really acted as if he supported the new mandated secularism, the new calendar. I mean, it, it still had 12 months, by the way. It began in the fall because it was supposed to be an agricultural calendar with the month of Vendemiere and ended back around at Fructidor around August 19th. I mean, they decimalized everything. Each month had 10 days. All the days had their own names. All the days of the year had their own names. Why would this even be? Because they were trying on purpose to replace all the saints days. So they didn't want any homage to a god or, or to a saint anywhere in the new calendar. I was born on Barbo, which means cornflower. <laughs> uh, you were born on Laurier, which means bay laurel. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's lovely. And this, by the way, is the only time I'm going to link you to Wikipedia. I find this absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it's all like farm implement names and plants, mostly, because it was supposed to be very homage to, you know, France, the France, the terroir, the, the agricultural basis, the real French person is from the country. And so that's what it, I mean. Sorry, I've gotten way off track, but I just love it so much. What I was saying is out outwardly, Papa is not only towing the line, he was constructing the lines, all the changes, all while maintaining in the background as if on hold his original status and his original fortune. And somehow managing to grow that fortune, you know, just like people who prospered in a lot of hard times. It was the manufacturers of fabrics. The fashions were changing. Whatever you were wearing told people what side you were on. So fashions were changing all the time and they all needed fabric. That's his business. He's actually able to increase his wealth during this horrific time in French history. Well, he still had the same goals he'd always had, one of which, for our purposes, was an advantageous marriage for each of his daughters. But only a fool would hitch their carriage to an aristocratic house right now. Nope, nope. There was a better plan. Barb Nicole's papa had an office next door to a business associate. One might say a competitor. <laughs> a fellow wealthy textile merchant who had also been successfully navigating the choppy new political waters. Mr. Clico had one son who he had been actively, I mean, pulling enough strings for an elephant's corset and bribing <laughs> people to keep out of the war for years, apprenticing him to, uh, I've got a friend who's a merchant in Switzerland. Yeah. And then wangling him a desk job in an import export office when he actually had to come home. That's maybe not very heroic, but young Francois Clicquot was saved from danger. He'd got some training and he was ready to join the family business. So the fathers made the arrangements. Even though it literally didn't matter, the young couple did have some things in common. They liked each other well enough. They'd seen each other around. You know, love would come later or not. The most right. important thing was the family connection. And their age difference wasn't very large. She was 20. He was about 24. Another thing these two families had in common that they've been keeping on the down low is that they were both Catholic and they were 
practicing quietly behind the doors. At the time, religion had been outlawed, but these two families were able to continue to practice their faith in some way, again, we don't know how, behind closed doors this entire time while Papa is out in front of the house, you know, tap dancing with the revolutionaries. On a day in Prairie All, that's June to you and me, <laughs> the families met possibly down in one of the cellars that dated from Roman times with the priest for the, quote, real wedding. What an appropriate beginning in a cellar for what her life would turn into. Underneath the town, there was a series of tunnels, like you'd said, dug by the Romans back in 80 BC. They were mining for salt and they were mining for chalk. And there was about 155 miles of these tunnels that just wound underneath the town. And then later in public, they went and had the official government wedding on the day whose name is, appropriately enough, Faux. F-A-U-X. Yes, it means false. Yes. But in this context, it meant a scythe. Um, remember, farm equipment and plants, a foe is a scythe. And I couldn't believe it when I came across <laughs> that day. You're like, oh, I have to write this down. I hope I get to say this. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the practice of scything a crop is called faussage. Things oh. I learn on the way by a rabbit hole. <laughs> Francois's father made him a partner in the business now that he was a married man, and Francois had a dream. His father's company had had a sideline in wine marketing and distribution for 20 or so years. Francois wanted to expand that side of the business, sort of make it his own. Father-in-law said a reluctant, okay, mm, local winemakers made the wine, and Francois and Bob Nicole would be distributors. It was the relative rarity of bottled wine that made Francois's business plan viable. Bottled equaled premium. Some of the wine they handled was a specialty of the region called Vin Mousseau, a lightly sparkling, very, very sweet, like a bottle of this had more sugar in it than a two liter bottle of Coca-Cola has today. <laughs> this is some sweet wine and also half flat like like January 1st at noon champagne, you know, because why they couldn't pump it up to the max because if they did, most of the time due to inferior glass blowing, the bottles would blow up and that's counterindicated at a celebration. So yikes. Skittles have 47 grams of sugar in an entire bag, which is one serving. So you could eat, let's see, you could eat six whole bags of Skittles. And maybe not quite make it as sweet as some of this wine was. I mean, yeah. I can't even bear it. They used to actually sort of eat it um, at times frozen-ish, like sorbet, which I, I can get yeah. behind that. Yeah. When I was reading in a lot of sources, they said it was served as like a slushy, And I was like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. But a, like a nice cold glass of syrup? Mm, no. no. <laughs> 
So you know who bought most of that wine? The nobility. Uh, used to be Versailles, actually. Used to go through quite a bit of it. So you see a serious problem with the customer base, don't you? I, yeah. even, they're really not there anymore post-revolution. And if they are, they're not advertising it. Francois's job, remember, during the war had been import-export. He's dealing with markets in other countries. And his plan was to take their wines and sell them internationally. And father-in-law had another reasonable objection to this plan. A continent at war is not the best place to find either frivolity, dependable trade routes, or disposable income. But you do you, boo-boo. It wasn't a major part of their business. Let's let this boy work this out. Like, get it out of your system, get some training in the wine before you move to the important part, the textiles. Two very important things happened in the year 1799, the year after Barb Nicole's wedding. The first was the birth of her only child, Clementine, in March, or should we say the month of Vantos? I just can't get past this. I'm like, I'm like fascinated by your fascination with this. Something else that happened that year, a man named Napoleon Bonaparte suddenly took over the government. Now, we'll give you a link to fall down that particular rabbit hole if you want. But here's the super condensed version. Napoleon's brother ran into the council chamber yelling that dudes were coming to kill them. Hurry, hurry. We have to flee to safety like troll in the dungeon. (laughs) And then almost everyone ran away. And Napoleon sat in the chairman's seat. The end. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but not by much. (laughs) It only took two days. And it's called a bloodless coup. So I, you know, there it is. The existing council realized, hey, no one's going to riot in the streets to save our power. The citizens were frankly by now just like, someone please take the steering wheel of this thing right now, please. We've said this before. France never really settled into a comfortable government zone after their own revolution the way that the Americans had seemed to. We seem to slip into some sort of contentious but functioning governmental system. And France just really had a hard time after their own revolution. So they were like building the airplane while flying it kind of thing. And it wasn't working out. Well, one good thing um, was the general lifting of the sort of pretend harsh distaste for show, for for fanciness. It became socially acceptable to wear nice clothes again. For one thing, to host elegant dances in one's home. Aristocratic society had been replaced by, I guess, capitalist society, which reminds me a lot of the era of the railroad barons and the Gilded Age heiresses. It seemed like the winds of change were favoring the high-end wine trade. Once again, hooray. And the textile industry began to boom for sure as the fashions changed to a more elaborate fashion. So the family business was a bit of all right. Francois and Barb Nicole began intensive research into their wine business. And honestly, from all accounts, it sounds like this shared interest in learning about this is really what brought them close together. And all of the accounts is they had a a love marriage. It was a love match, you know, after they were married and most likely because of the shared interest. There's a lesson in that for you newlyweds. (laughs) The wine industry in this area actually had many, many women in it, maybe because it was um, an industry that hadn't really been able to be industrialized. It was more of a, of a craft and an art than a, than a product, you know, that you could regiment. 
And so a lot of vignerons were women. And a lot of them, they were working with their fathers or their husbands, and they died in the war, and they were still running the little family vineyard. The young couple had hopes and dreams and strategies, and they went out in the field, literally, to learn from the local manufacturers the whole industry from the bottom up. You know what I wish? I wish I had a glass of champagne open to turn bottom up. Uh, I actually have a bottle of Veuve Clicquot chilling in my refrigerator. I know. I went and I bought it because I wanted to sample it because I don't think I've ever had. I'm not much of a champagne drinker. So I bought some and Brian was very excited because he loves champagne. But yay, we just haven't had a time that, you know, we could enjoy because once you open it, mm, you got to drink it. I know all those things from Hammock or Schlemmer that say they're going to preserve. They don't. The silver spoon hanging doesn't work. (laughs) Just drink it all. Be prepared. Get a cheese board and settle in. That's right. Okay. We touched on Dom Perignon just a little bit ago. If you think Dom Perignon was the origin of champagne, his whole come quick for I am drinking stars comment was the beginning of champagne. I hate to be the one to tell you this, but it wasn't. He was actually trying to get rid of those starry bubbles. He was a winemaker, but he did not invent champagne as we know it. That was actually done by the British. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we are actually headed to Veuve Clicquot uh, in a matter of weeks, and we're sort of like, maybe we shouldn't even bring this up. <laughs> the British, back in the 1600s, were buying barrels of wine from France. And baffled on how to extend the shelf life of these, they added a little brandy as a preservative. They added a little bit of yeast and bottled them. And when they did, bubbles were created. So it's not really champagne from Dom Perignon. It's sparkling wine from Britain. And the British had a stronger history of quality glass blowing. And their bottles could handle the strain a little bit better than the delicate French bottles. So British people who had begun bottling cider took that knowledge into their bottling of this wine. It was like a happy accident. Um, Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) So yes, Dom Perignon was a winemaker. Correct. But he viewed the bubbles in his wine as a giant nuisance. And he tried every which way to get rid of them which will surprise a lot of people. Now, the legend of Dom Perignon got hauled out of the back catalog during the epic marketing and branding section of the Champagne timeline. So he kind of became the poster child. Yeah. Well, it was actually the 1889 World's Fair in Paris that Dom became the marketing poster boy for champagne. Now, I do want to say he did invent some of the process of champagne the way it's made right now, a second fermentation. So he was involved in that too. So I don't want to not give him any credit because he does have some credit. Right. But he is in no way like the godfather of soul, you know. (laughs) By 1801, Francois felt ready to get on the road and try to sell first to Germany and Switzerland and then Great Britain. The problem was without a social entree, it was hard to get a toehold in any real way. And it reminds me of the current housing market. There's limited customers available. And so the established real estate people with contacts and history have it all sewn up. People already have, quote, their guy. 
You know, mm. it's hard to break in. Right. Father-in-law, who might have also said, I told you so, I have no evidence of this, in 1802, actually retired. And his only son, Francois, was now in charge of the whole company. Perhaps this would bring the boy back down to earth. Well, it didn't, because Francois and Barb Nicole focused on the wine half of the business. Mother Nature said to father-in-law, don't worry, I got this. The first year, oh, the sales were okay. He was a good salesperson, but when it came time to deliver, the crops failed and some of the bottled reserves blew up in a freak heat wave. Pretty common problem. If I were you, time traveler, go with some goggles on. (laughs) Um, My mom used to tell the story about they would be sitting up in her dining room and bottles would explode in the cellar. Really? What was grandpa making down there? Not champagne, I'll tell you that. But uh, anyway, so they were My dad was making root beer. Did it blow up? (laughs) No, it didn't. Some of them didn't work, like you opened them and they didn't fizz. And so he said not to drink those. Well, functionally, that's what was happening to champagne manufacturers. It was such a temperamental, I mean, you know, vin but champagne is easier to say. I'm just telling you, like, yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) this whole time, if we slip and say champagne, it's because, you know, that's the terminology that we have grown to know, but it's actually still called vin for like another hundred years. So, um... (laughs) So yeah, that's that's literally what was happening. That product was so temperamental and also like for no reason or every reason, it just wouldn't work. Like your dad's root beer. What did I do? It's the same batch. I've sealed it. It's been in the same cellar. What is going on? Well, Francois and Barb Nicole doubled down. They were sick of being dependent on others for the wine that they sold, and they decided to start bottling their own wines. Now, I will tell you, they owned vast tracts of vineyards and arable land, but they were not there yet. They bought casks and blended them to put in the bottle. Barb Nicole was the one who turned out to have a knack for blending wines for the best flavors. She was obsessed with the the whole cycle of the whole thing, growing, harvest, pressing, aging, bottling. It was a very, very exciting time and such an amazing project. Napoleon himself was a lover of the vin mousseau. He came to stay at Barb Nicole's papa's house while looking over the local wine industry. I am imagining that he took a polite glass of Francois and Barb Nicole's wine like you do when your uncle has grapes in the backyard. (laughs) And you're like, huh, hmm." it's not ready for prime time. It's just not ready. This just reminds me so much of that advice that Ira Glass gave to every creative out there years ago. He said, nobody tells this to people who are beginners. And I really wish someone had told me All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But it's like there's this gap. The first couple of years that you're making stuff, what you're making isn't good. It's not that great. It's trying to be good. It has ambition to be good, but it's not that good. End quote. Thank you, Ira Glass. That's so true. And that's what's happening to this family right now. Plus, Napoleon already had his favorite sparkling winemaker, Jean-Rémy Moet, pronounce the T because he wasn't French. He was Dutch. I know people are going to be, they're going to be like, what is even happening to what I knew? It's Moet and Chandon, right? Moet. It's still Moet. Moet, In fact, it used to be spelled M-O-E-T-T-E in the era of alternate spellings. Yep. Francois's trips are not being very fruitful. Sorry. 
<laughs> but one thing that he did accomplish while he was out on one of his trips was meeting another salesman out on the road, a gentleman named Louis Bon. Louis was multilingual. Francois was not. He was German. He was smart. He was a brilliant salesman. And he jumped in with Francois to help him sell this wines of this fledgling company. Louis was all about it. And they even tried to um, work together. They'd go to England, for instance, and try to work any connections they might have to get in with the families that are throwing these big parties and need that sparkling wine. And they were just unsuccessful and unsuccessful. When peace allowed entry into Russia, Louis was there. He was he was the outside salesman. He's on the road all the time. And he goes to Russia thinking that it's a wide open market because they're not selling sparkling wine there yet. But what it was was a wide open market for fleecing salespeople like Louis Bon. And that was another failed expedition to try and sell some of this wine. Also, Napoleon declared himself the emperor and war was popping off everywhere again. Now, Francois was the one of the three, you know, Louis, Barb Nicole and Francois that was losing hope, weather and war and just wastage and just sheer uphill learning curve was breaking him down. He had always been sort of a melancholy man. You know, his father often wrote to him about his, quote, gloom. But it was really breaking him down, and his spirits were very, very low. In October of 1805, he began to go downhill physically, very rapidly. And October 23rd, after much, much suffering, he died. Barb Nicole was now a widow at the age of only 27. The official story is that Francois perished from typhoid, but the local rumor mill, I want to say underlined rumor mill, had it that he had actually died by suicide caused by business failure. Well, he certainly had one business failure after another. I mean, he was taking this very successful business that his father had given him and running it into the ground because he was focusing on this wine that just wasn't taking off. Well, either way, father-in-law was devastated, and now, with no son, he decided he'd liquidate the family business. Barb Nicole, with money of her own and the property inherited from her husband, would be a wealthy woman. Perhaps she'd marry again. She certainly did not need, in any way, to have her nose approaching a grindstone. I mean, there's no obligation on her to make money, save money, go to work, tighten one's belt, nothing. She would have been fine had it stopped here. Now, outside salesman Louis was the one that convinced Barb Nicole that the Clico Enterprise was on the verge of something great. Please don't give up. Please, please, please. I've been out here. I'm like sampling the air and the fashions <laughs> and what's going on. Let's find a way to continue. And so Barb Nicole, who that's what she wanted anyway. I mean, that's what she really wanted. But, you know, with no support, you feel like, well, you know. I can't really do that. Well, she approached her father-in-law. There is a long history of women, especially widows, running these great enterprises. It was definitely not a radical concept that father-in-law hadn't seen before. And beneficially for her, he's in an older generation who was not as concerned with the current fashions, the current expectations of genteel idleness for women either. Bourgeois women were turning into the new aristocracy, but he didn't subscribe to that. Father-in-law had seen her zeal and her aptitude, and he took some convincing, 
But in the end, he came around. He gave her the equivalent to nearly a million modern-day dollars, but he had two stipulations. One, she needed to have a male business partner, someone who was experienced in the wine business, and she would have to learn more about the business hands-on. You know what? I believe that father-in-law probably should have insisted on this for Francois. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. think it was a little harder to... I mean, maybe, I guess you tell me, would it have been a little harder, like man to man, if you want your son to have pride in this time and in this place, he probably didn't feel like he could insist on that kind of thing. Right. Or he was all for it back then because Francois was so enthusiastic. And with hindsight, he can see that what they were doing was not enough, even though they were on this, you know, autodidactic voyage of learning about the wine business, it needed to be, in his opinion, you know, a little more organized, a little more formal. So she had to sign a four-year contract with another textile slash wine man named <laughs> Alexandre Fourneau, and she put in $1.5 of her own money. Finally, and at last, the textile side of the family business was shut down. It was all in on wine. And the name of the new company was Veuve Clicquot Forno and Company. Outside salesmen started to become successful in brand recognition and created a little bit of an aura of exclusivity. He wrote a letter back to her. The favorable reputation attached abroad to the name of Clicquot is invariable and can be considered the unique foundation of your establishment. There's no labels on these bottles yet, but the branding was on the cork. And in this case, Francois and Barb Nicole had been branding an anchor onto the top of their corks to signify that it was that was their trademark. Okay, so this is good. There's like a brand on the bottle now, which isn't super common. And then there's a brand name that's starting to get recognized. Okay, we have a little glimmer of hope. But war reared its ugly head again. And what did that mean? Closed ports, prohibited trading partners, delay, damage, any break in the war. Outside salesmen got sent to Russia and his products were eagerly snapped up. I mean, how frustrating for Barb Nicole to know that if only it was, hey, I made this. Hey, awesome. I won it, which is what it could have been because she made good stuff, which people liked. And that's the end. If only she could just let that be it. She would be printing money. One of the failures that Barb Nicole and Forneau had was epically horrible. They had devised this plan to ship 50,000 bottles in kind of a zigzag route through the English Channel to Amsterdam, sneaking around the harbors that had been closed by Napoleon and getting this sparkling wine to Russia. They had this plan. So Alexander himself went with the wine, got it safely to Amsterdam. But just as the ship is about to leave, the port gets closed. There's a blockade and that shipment can't leave. It's stuck there for months and months. And this wine is very temperamental. And if it gets too hot or too cold, it's ruined. And that's exactly what happened to these 50,000 bottles. It was a big blow. So... War constantly meant closed ports, prohibited trading partners that changed a lot, delay, 
inevitable damage that she had no control over. There's nothing she can do. She just has to throw things out there and hope for the best. Complications dragged on. And after four years, business ground to an absolute halt. And Mr. Forno pieced out. He went out and started a new company with one of his sons. His company, by the way, got bought by Tattinger. So they did okay. <laughs> he did not have faith in the Clico company. Now, back at Clico, Napoleon had also put his thumb on all wine exports from France. So now there's new licenses, fees, inspections, tracking, in effect, a giant tax on wine merchants. Barb Nicole hated Napoleon, by the way. She called him, quote, the devil. Like she viewed him as her biggest obstacle, not just for these taxes, but because he just stirred unrest all over the place and made it impossible to do any business because everybody was running from him or fighting him or angry at him or closing down ports because of him. And it was like a nightmare. It was a nightmare. At least he was nice to one member of the family. In 1810, Papa was nominated as the mayor of the town of Reims. Napoleon, throwing over his first wife, Josephine, was marrying again to Marie Antoinette's niece, another Austrian archduchess, 19 years old, and sent to cement the peace between France and Austria. Barb Nicole didn't get the contract for the wedding celebrations. Dang it. But at least maybe now everyone could calm down. I mean, you could guess who got it, right? Moet. Moet. But at least maybe now everyone could calm down and she could go about her business. It was a wise decision that she made to pull back on the export business a bit and concentrate on domestic marketing. Cask wines and barrels made by her company from grapes grown on her estates. Chardonnay grapes for Blanc de Blanc van Mousseau. Again, left to her own devices, Barb Nicole and her creativity and her foresight would have led her to success. But again, war. Ugh, didn't we just handle this war? Oh, no, that was with Austria. This time I have beef with the British and also with the Russians. I mean to tell you, how many wives could you have? One. Dang it. That solution is not open to us anymore. <laughs> Well, countries that Napoleon had already plowed through were destroyed and bankrupt. Outside salesmen found it difficult to interest starving, broken people in luxury beverages somehow. So Barb Nicole wisely converted her excess stock into champagne so that it would keep. She's gambling on future markets. Most of the banner harvest of the year 1811 went into the cellar in bottles. Up in the sky... Over the year of 1811, the Flaugerga Comet in the sky, some people said, was the portent of the end of Napoleon's reign, which I have to tell you, increasingly people were praying for. The comet now got burned into the corks, and you can still see this comet on the labels of modern day of Clicquot, along with Clicquot's traditional anchor. This bottling, the one that was put into the hidden cellars, is also known as Cuvée de la Comète. You can see it. It's like everyone's like, where's the comet? So there's an anchor and there's the letters. And right behind it is kind of an out, a jaggedy outline. It's kind of a loose five-pointed star. Right. And um, Vauvclicot's not alone in putting that comet on the vintage. A lot of um, vignerons and bottlers chose to put a representation of either a star or a comet on um, on their wine that year. And it was a very, very, very big harvest. Sounds good. The problem is 
a lot of supply means prices go lower. So better put it in the sellers and let it sit. Right. It's going to buy her at least 18 months because that's her minimum for aging this sparkling wine. And she knew, as as did all the other vineyard owners, that this harvest was exceptional, not just in the quantity, like you said, but the quality. It was perfect weather and the perfect growing conditions to make this perfect wine. And as if, if I could play ominous music, I would do it here. Napoleon... <laughs> Could not stand that. He could not stand the goodness of anything. (laughs) And Napoleon and the Russians were now going hand to hand. You know, the Russian army actually made it to the city of Reims. This could well be it. She had the precious 1811 walled up. She hid it away the best she could from certain destruction in the furthest cellar that she could get it to. That's really all she could do. French troops and their allies had already decimated the stocks of our old friend Moet. It was a matter of time, she thought. Imagine her surprise when the Russians came and there was no looting. The Russians had been ordered to not loot any houses. Don't bother the people that live there. So instead of taking the city and destroying it, they took the city, but they didn't destroy anything. So Barb Nicole is a marketer. She gets out some of her sparkling wine, not the stuff that's walled up, but some of the stuff that's really good. And she starts selling it to the Russians that are in town and they're buying it and they're loving it. Yeah, they drank through all those other unsold bottles, bought them and drank them. And they became... And Moet thought the same thing after a while, after he got done being super mad and upset. (laughs) Um, These Russians became sort of living billboards for the Clicquot and Moet name. What she said of the Russian soldiers who were buying her champagne and then going back and being ambassadors for her product, she said, today they drink, tomorrow they will pay. Papa was made a baron by Napoleon, so he has been ennobled. Um, but Napoleon abdicated that same year in 1814 and the world celebrated by drinking what? The sparkling wine of the Champagne region. Although Barb Nicole was super bummed that the Russian general who had defeated Napoleon himself celebrated with the wine of, say it with me, Monsieur Moet. Moet. What was it gonna take? So, you know what? Maybe that insult lit the fire of her daring do, because what happened next was quite shocking. Now, remember, outside salesman Louis has been cultivating relationships in Russia for years. He knows where the shipment should go. He knows the people that will be buying it in Russia. He's got everything in place. This is the time for them to act. It was not yet legal to send bottled wine from France to Russia, but it was only a matter of time. Barb Nicole and Louis Bond got busy as soon as Napoleon abdicated because they had a plan in their heads and they were going to make it happen. While it was questionably legal to be shipping wine to Russia, Barb Nicole and outside salesman Louis Bond, in secret and defying laws, Barb Nicole and Louis Bond got 10,000 bottles of their sparkling wine by wagon to Rouen, which is on the sea. There they had a ship waiting for them. And again, the laws are bouncing back and forth at this time. So they wanted to be first. 
and they were willing to take the risk to do it. These people, if they've been on the precipice of great things and selling out their product so many times and something happens. The wine they're trying to send to Russia is a temperamental, temperature sensitive product that could break, spoil, turn cloudy, explode, be seized by officials or turned away. Nevertheless, it was worth the risk to be there first. Louis so stressed out about the fragility of this valuable cargo and his giant responsibility for said cargo that he actually slept in the hold with it <laughs> um, so he could keep an eye on it at all times. I think that's pretty dangerous because people know that if one bottle blows, a lot of times the whole crate will blow. I hope he had his goggles. <laughs> Again with the goggles. A month after Russia lifted the embargo, Louis was pulling into the harbor with the ship and miraculously, despite rough seas and warming weather, those bottles of wine were perfect. And more importantly, Vuvklico wines were the very first champagne merchants to arrive in Russia. High-ranking dudes were pushing and shoving to have a chance to buy just two bottles, please, please. Notes were slipped under outside salesman's door. Please, might I meet you downstairs for a purchase? He kept the supply here at the dock artificially low. Prices spiked. He sent most of it on to a broker who could command prices that even Barb Nicole could never have dreamed of. But the rarity is one thing. The taste is another thing. Louis wrote back to her of the events on the dockside of all the fine wines that have teased Northern heads. None compare to Madame Clicquot's 1811 cuvee. Delicious to taste. It is an assassin. And anyone who wants to make its acquaintance will become well attached to his chair because after paying his respects to a bottle, he will go looking for crumbs under the tables. <laughs> He'll go looking for crumbs because that bottle had a higher alcohol content than most wines had before, because not only did they add the yeast to create the bubbles and the sugar to create alcohol, but the grapes themselves were so sweet that they also created alcohol. So this bottle, a glass is like drinking an entire bottle of normal vintage. Tsar Alexander swore he'd drink nothing but the champagne of the Vuv Clicquot. Now, the Vuv herself, Vuv means widow. I don't know if we've ever said that. Barb Nicole had thought ahead and she had a second giant shipment of over 12,000 more bottles sent unaccompanied and sort of unheralded as backup for outside salesman Louis to sell. I mean, kind of willy-nilly before anyone else had even hired a ship. Her 12,000 bottles are halfway to Russia when the legality gets sorted out and everyone feels comfortable leaving. So that's how in advance of everyone she is. She's got over 22,000 bottles in the czar's hand and the love, the absolute love of the Russian aristocracy. I think it's hysterical. You know, all those other wine merchants are getting their product onto ships. And at this point, the marketing, it was instantaneous in Russia and everyone is screaming for a bottle of the widow. That's all they had to say. That's brand recognition right there. The daring do made her famous. The quality of the wine made her rich. Thank you.
Barb Nicole had another problem. This time it was production. She had been dwindling all of her supply that she had down in her cellars, and she just had all of these orders coming in because her sparkling wine was such a hit. She had to do some scaling up. When you increase production, you have to take a good hard look at your techniques and see if there's anything or anywhere that you could improve efficiency. She realized that there was one huge bottleneck in the production. (laughs) The sparkling wine had been stored on its side. And what happens is all the sludge, all the dead yeast, and now there are technical words, but I am doing champagne making for dummies here. All the yeast is settling in the side of that bottle and it has to come out because you can't have that in the champagne to drink it. So what had been happening forever is they had been taking the corks off, pouring the sludge out, taking this sparkling wine and putting it into another bottle so that it would be clear. But what happened was is that you kind of killed a lot of the bubbles when you did that. And it was taking so much time. Some other, perhaps less scrupulous winemakers would add additives to further clarify their wine. Egg whites. Milk, cream, blood, yes, bone marrow, which is still done when you're making certain kinds of clear soups, or something mysterious, and I'm giving it the side eye called nothing more than powder, number three. Well, Barb Nicole says, I don't want that flavor. I don't want any of those flavors in my champagne. So she's thinking there has to be another way to produce this sparkling wine, something that was going to save time to get all that sediment out of the bottle and get the more bottles of champagne made and out the door. All of these methods required time and time was what she didn't have. So we have to cut this time. That's the only thing she could do. The winemakers under her said it couldn't be done. This is how everybody does it. Every single maker of this kind of wine on the earth has to rely on the passage of time to clarify the wine. Not so, said Barb Nicole. She took a look at her dining room table and got her carpenter to cut some holes in it, leaned the table up against the wall and said, what if we put these bottles in upside down and then the sediment will be down by the cork? It will come out very easily. And because all of her winemakers were saying, that's not how we do it, she snuck down. And for six weeks, she had a rack of these bottles using this method that she's inventing, where she just goes down and turns them a little bit each day after all the workers were gone. And after six weeks, when she popped the top and took a look at the champagne that was inside, it was clear. Yeah, it was like a little bit of a flick. Like you'd go down, stand in front of the rack and like turn, 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 50 bottles. And then you go upstairs. It just it just shook things loose from the side of the wine bottle and down to the area of the cork. Gravity assist. It is a method that, in a way, is still being used today called riddling. Or remouage. (laughs) If you're French and fancy. So she was able to get that process done in a fraction of the time that everyone else had to wait. Everyone else was waiting months and months, and she got it down to six weeks. It was a giant advantage over her competitors. She paid some key employees to keep the secret begged most of them to keep it under their hat. This was going to be the secret to our success and the security of your jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and no one let the secret out and everyone's looking around, how is she doing this? 
And I'm here to tell you, it took almost a decade for anyone to catch up with her. And we used to sell those racks. uh, I can't remember the name. Starts with a P. We used to sell those at Anthropology as antiquities because the antiques buyer used to raid the flea markets of France and send them back. And so every store had several of those. And what Uh do people do with them? Use them as wine racks? Yeah, I can't imagine what else you'd use them for. I have to tell you, they take up a lot of floor space. I don't think they're very efficient, but they, they look cool. I mean, yeah. If you had a wine cellar, be neat. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good for like the average kitchen. You, well, do people who shop at Anthropology have the average kitchen? I have no idea. <laughs> Barb Nicole also bought land for more vineyards, and she was now in control of the whole process. She depended on no one. Ten years after that famous 1811 vintage, she was riding the wave of fashion and also writing the successful industrialization of corporate champagne production. Wolf Clicquot was now producing 280,000 bottles a year. It's 10 times more than the most famous vintage she had. Barb Nicole Clicquot was at the height of her power and influence. What more could she want? Well, like Alva Vanderbilt or Leonard Jerome, grandpapa of Winston Churchill, or any number of Gilded Age millionaires, one thing you could collect with all this money was a title for your daughter. At 17, daughter Clementine had just come out into society, and you already know that the fortune hunters were circling this prize. Clementine herself was pretty shy and retiring. She did not have her mother's fire or drive in the very least. Well, Along comes the young Count of Chevigny, Louis-Marie-Joseph Chevigny, 24 years old, and with a biography to thrill and shock the onlooker. His mama and papa had been habitués of the court of King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Come the revolution, papa had actually fought on the royalist side. His mama and her noble sister and her five children were taken to prison to await Madame Guillotine for the crime of treason, even though Louis, our count, the baby, was only a few months old. Nevertheless, he was to be tried for treason and executed. Three of his sisters and his aunt died in prison. And when his mama, I mean, in her very last days, begged a random female visitor. Um, Ladies of the town were allowed to visit the prison on errands of mercy, you know, bringing clothes, bringing little scraps of food or whatever. And this particular local woman was allowed to take the two surviving children out of there. The two children were separated. Uh, Two wealthy women in the community decided to take these kids and they were raised separately. He was sent to military school. He had been an officer then for Napoleon. But at the very end, he turned on Napoleon and fought for the monarchy. Marie Antoinette's husband's younger brother, the Comte de Provence, technically was king, or at least styled himself so from the very time Marie Antoinette's son died in prison as a child. But here, almost 20 years later, he comes to the head of a new constitutional monarchy as King Louis XVIII, because that is the inescapable family tradition. (laughs) And as king, he is able to restore the titles of anyone that he desires, 
And because our Count of Chevrenier, Count Louis, so we don't confuse him with outside salesman Louis, he was able to restore his title as Count, although while he had a very impressive title, he had no money to back it. He was impoverished. There was no family money supporting him as a Count, but he did have the title and he did know how to live large and he knew that he wanted to stay at this level of society. So Clementine is looking like a very good catch for him. Papa Nicolas saw Count in front of his name, and that's all he needed. And somehow this guy charmed Barb Nicole. Well, Barb Nicole had a little desire to be aristocracy adjacent to. She allowed this prospective son-in-law to pretty much have his way with preparations for the grand aristocratic wedding. She let him raid her pocketbook yeah. like in the craziest way. But after all this hype, after all this expenditure, right before the wedding happened, Barb Nicole's brother died. And so instead of being a giant society wedding that the son-in-law had planned, instead it became a small, solemn affair. And after the wedding, the Comte proved to be sort of a loose cannon. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, he's always asking for more money, more money. We need a country house. We need a city house. Like he's very into losing giant sums of money gambling and having to be bailed out. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't like the answer, if she's saying, no, I'm not going to give you money for that. He goes and writes this raunchy poetry and self-publishes it. And it's obvious that it's about Clementine. So Barb Nicole is out there buying up all this poetry, this awful, awful raunchy poetry that he's writing. <laughs> so in addition to paying for that, she ends up giving him whatever it is that he's asking for. Well, the one good thing he brought to the family, other than his high cheekbones, I think that was good too, <laughs> um, Barb Nicole's granddaughter, Marie Clementine. So hooray. Though Barb Nicole could not resist through, hmm, I don't know if I would even call it blackmail, poetry yeah. blackmail, yeah, right, <laughs> um, or just, you know, charming. She did find him a little charming on one hand, you know, but practical Barb Nicole was still there also in her head. She warned him away from the champagne business entirely. He'd run it into the ground. She couldn't trust her baby with this man. No, no. she could trust her daughter with this man, but right. not her company. <laughs> right. Speaking of the daughter, Barb Nicole did not feel that her daughter was equipped through either education or just personality to run this international company. And so who, what could she do? And then one right after the other, first her father-in-law and then her own papa died. Those were her constant counselors and her cheerleaders. She was looking around for a business partner, never a new husband. I want to be clear, who would in fact legally own her company after the marriage. Widows had a lot of power over their own destinies. Married women did not. So it was very, very important that she not remarry. But her first thought for a business partner was our old friend, outside salesman Louis. He would have been the perfect choice. He'd been the one to convince her to try to do this in the first place. The one who was there through the lean times. The one who slept near a valuable and illegal cargo going to <laughs> Russia and made her name famous. The close personal friend of the czar, you know. But I have to tell you. Poor Louis, outside salesman Louis, had also just died in a freak accident. So she looks around. Who Who is there? Who else is there? Obviously, she is dead set on not sending it to her son-in-law. 
She has another outside salesman, a man named George von Kessler. And he had also been with her through the lean days. And he was very interested in the business. She named George von Kessler the heir. He was going to get the entire business. She even set her retirement date for a couple of years in the future. You know how you're advised during a period of grief not to make any major changes? Don't move. Don't change jobs. Don't mm-hmm. make rash decisions. Don't paint the bathroom. Just let it <laughs> percolate. You're not thinking straight. To me, this is what this is. I mean, there has been a vast degree of personal grief in the past, you know, couple of years. And so that's what I think it is. But this shocking step led many people who heard about this to just assume that Mr. Kessler was her, I guess, boyfriend, let's say, Uh in the G-rated podcast that we are currently producing. Who's to say? I mean, nobody knows how involved they were. I do know that she didn't take the additional step of getting married to him. And she also came to her senses at a very quick like period. I mean, it took about a year, but she's like, wait, oi, oi, you know, what did I do? <laughs> and she recanted, I mean, hooray that she hadn't signed anything during this year of percolation, you know. Right. I'm not retiring, JK, JK. Sorry, George, I'm not giving you my international company for freezies after all, actually. You know, he kept working there, though, and that's got to be the most awkward encounter in the break room if... Okay, like, okay, I want to point something out because I think she was probably a good boss. Yes, she's kind of offering her employees a um, profit sharing to keep the secret of how she's getting the sparkling wines created so quickly, but they're doing it. You know, no one's trying to sell it to another competitor. And this guy's staying. He keeps working for her even after she goes backsies on it. So I think she was probably someone really good to work for. Yes. Yes. That's, my th- that's all I'm saying. And we can't see into his heart. I think if he'd known her that long, maybe the reason that nothing got signed is because he knew that it wasn't in her best interest. He knew that it wasn't right, you mm-hmm. know? So let's hope. Let's hope for that. I, you know, I don't know. But <laughs> here's another awkward thing. Barb Nicole had taken a new employee under her wing, a man in his early 20s named Matthew Edward Werler or Werler because he was German, but he quickly changed his last name to the more French Verle. With an accent and everything. Yes. <laughs> and of course, you know, what did people say again? Oh, oh, hello, triangular blue-eyed man on the premises, blah, 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 whatever the motivation. She saw in Edward a valuable quality. And she began to masterclass train that man personally in all aspects of the business. Within a year, she had named Edward her seller master, her original seller master, the one, by the way, that often gets credit for the remouage process. If you are reading and you come across like her seller master invented the riddling process. So he sometimes gets full credit for that Mm. process, by the way. Anyway, he retired. So he's gone. But (laughs) yeah. Oh, you know, in this story, I saw an article on Wikipedia that had um, Philippe as the head, you know, the father-in-law as the head of this company, the brains behind it. Like what? (laughs) You know, she's mentioned, but I'm like, no, no. (laughs) And yeah, so I think there's a lot of men that are taking or people that are giving men credit for things that she did. I think that reminds me of when Josephine Cochran designed the washing machine and the Mm -hmm. man that assembled it to her specifications is sometimes the one that gets that credit. Right, right. Even though he didn't take it, 
Mm-mm. Anyway. Yeah, and I don't think Philippe would have taken it either if he'd yeah. seen this Wikipedia article. <laughs> well, anyway, all was not lost for old George von Kessler. He convinced Barb Nicole to diversify, not just to be putting all of her eggs into champagne, but to re- We've already covered that. She did not put <laughs> eggs in champagne on purpose. <laughs> or the secret sauce or whatever, the chemical that hurt people. Powder number three. He convinced her to reopen the textile company, get that going, and to open a bank, the Veuve Clicquot Ponsardin and Company Bank, and with him at the head of both of these operations. You know, that actually, on the face of it, the bank made a lot of sense. That Mm -hmm. is the other end of having planted vineyards. You know what I mean? It's like the other end because a lot of winemakers had to depend on the largesse and and the speed of major banks to get capital to produce the next year's crop. And without that bottleneck, they could expand even further. So on the face of it, that made a lot of sense. Right. But however, (laughs) George made some bad investments in failing textile mills in Germany. All of that side of the company first began to drag the bank down and therefore the entire Vove Clicquot company. The soundtrack of The Office quickly became George and Barb Nicole arguing about the debt, his poor decisions, the lack of oversight. Ultimately, they parted ways. George got the textile business in the business divorce. Notably, by the way, George left for Germany and founded Germany's oldest sparkling wine company, Kessler, still in production. And I have to say they are actually reasonably priced, but I keep thinking that they are sweeter than I like my champagne to be, even though they say brute. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's the reviews I've been reading. So um, anyway, the, that wine, Kessler, was served in splendor on the famous Zeppelin blimps. So he did okay. I'm glad yeah. it all worked out. He definitely took the secret of the remouage with him to his new endeavor, but By then, the process had already started to leak out anyway, so it wasn't as criminal as it might have been a decade before. Well, Barb Nicole would rather just close down the other half of the expansion, too, actually, but closing the bank and running it was full of these bewildering regulatory hurdles. And so Barb Nicole offered Edward Werle a large stake in Vauclicot if he would just be the one to deal with all of that. And he was a solid businessman. He said, sure, uh, no. He said, oui, bien sûr. And he did it. He was able to untangle all of it. It took years. It took a big chunk of her wealth before it would all be resolved. I mean, there was a recession and a depression in the middle of it. It wasn't just that there was all kinds of banking paperwork to untangle, but the economy of the country wasn't doing so great. Barb Nicole was out of town when the big crisis occurred. The larger bank that held most of her bank's assets suddenly failed without warning, along with a cascading series of nationwide, very public bank failures. It caused a panic and a run on Barb Nicole's own bank. Barb Nicole stood to lose her whole company, her whole entire company, but she didn't know it yet. She's visiting her daughter. Edward, like the Barb Nicole of old, decided to risk everything in one throw of the dice, and he risked all of his own property as collateral. He had married the daughter of another wealthy champagne maker. This is a very incestuous, <laughs> incestuous <laughs> industry. Um, well, anyway, that, that woman and her property had made him a very wealthy man, and he went by night to Paris in his personal carriage and convinced a bank there to bail out Barb Nicole's bank to the tune 
of modern $44 million. And by the morning, he turned around, hadn't shaven, certainly hadn't bathed. (laughs) He was in person, standing there in Barb Nicole's bank, openly ready to pay investors their money. If you wish, here it is. It's not a big deal. No problem. I understand your concern. Here is your money. Do you see it beside me? He calmed the panic. He saved the bank. I mean, she lost $5.5 million, but she didn't lose all her dollars. You know what I mean? Like he stemmed the tide. There's a scene just like this in, um, if anyone's a Terry Pratchett fan, there's a scene (laughs) just like this in the book, Making Money, where the hilariously named character Moist von Lipvig actually (laughs) does this same thing. Yeah. Interesting. He shows up at the bank and calms a panic and actually becomes beloved of the everyone that sees him. So speaking of beloved of everyone who sees him, knowing all is lost, Barb Nicole has returned to town. And this is what she sees. Edward Werley has saved Vovclico. Imagine how this felt. A great relief. I mean, at this time, she's in her mid-50s. And there's this man that she had put her her trust in when he was just like 20 years old. And he had come through in a style to which she could certainly relate. So in 1831, she made him a full partner. And the count of bad poetry was completely out of the picture as far as the company goes. Edward, as a matter of fact, would go on to be a billionaire. I mean, in modern money. Right. Yeah. The next few years were a giant roller coaster. We mentioned that the news was out and people kind of had her secret. She'd basically lost her head start. Vulva was falling behind a little. There was new technology. There was new methodology. It was the beginning of the railroad concept and open markets all over the world. And politically, again, France was turbulent, I guess we can say. They were moving from one branch of the royal family to another branch of the royal family. And corporately, Veuve Clicquot as a company now began to move from this one woman-led operation to more of a modern corporate structure with her as the head of the board of directors. Barb Nicole and partners worked years of 14-hour days to turn her ship around. By the time Barb Nicole retired at 64, her company, her empire, let's just call it by now, was selling upwards of 400,000 bottles a year. That's $30 million modern money a year. And I think the most interesting thing about this is she is a worldwide phenomenon. She is... Her name is known. She's iconic around the world, and she's never left France. Mm-hmm. That just blew my mind over and over again. But once she was retired, she was able to spend time with her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. She began to enjoy her new role as a grand dame grandmama. Clementine's daughter had grown up and married another count. She got a good one this time, a responsible <laughs> one. This time, finally, the count of my dreams. She actually held them a wedding in this castle. And at the end as a wedding present, she gave them the castle. Yeah. Yeah. Buddy. (laughs) That level of wealth, you know, that is. Yeah. She also built a family chateau. I mean, it was a palace called the Chateau de Bourseau, and which is now run as a winery. Tickets are available. (laughs) Um, She gave extensively to charities. She was a benevolent grandparent. She was the hostess to aristocracy and to royalty. But guess what? Off in the forest, the business was almost snatched again when fashion changed. Somebody who had grown up with the success of Madame Clicquot, standing in front of her at all times, the widow Jean-Louise Melin-Pomery, 
champagne drinkers. Do you recognize that name? (laughs) Swept in with her dry, brute, they call it, not sweet champagnes as favored in Britain and upended the champagne business entirely. That's actually the kind I like too. I don't like sweet champagne. I uh, might make people mad, but I've never been a really big um, champagne fan. It gives me a headache like really fast. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really like the taste of it, but maybe that's because I never had the good stuff. Now I will say there is a bottle of Clico in my refrigerator right now awaiting my daughter's 27th birthday party. So <laughs> yay. yay. By the time this airs, I may be a fan. I don't know. But I keep thinking my son, okay, my kids are, these kids are over 21. He had brought this bottle of red wine to our house and it was so sweet. It was some sweet wine. And at first I was like, oh my gosh, this is like drinking grape juice. Next thing I know, I have never drunk a bottle of wine as quickly as I drink that bottle of wine. It was so sweet, but it just like went down like nothing. I think sweet wine, like German wine mostly is um, what I thought wine tasted like when I was a little kid. Oh, see, I thought it tasted like, well, my parents had us drinking much drier stuff. So that's what I think of when I think of red wine. And maybe they gave it to us because they knew we wouldn't like it. (laughs) Now I think about it. Yeah. Okay. So the widow Pomery actually passed Clico in sales in a matter of 10 years by like double. I mean, she's producing a million bottles a year. (laughs) Wow. I mean, you know what? Clico walked so she could run. But Clico didn't pause as a company. They they kept pace. They followed the lead. They're not too proud. You know, they differentiated their brand and also began to produce the fashionable and marketable dry champagne. It was not all over for the wine industry. In 1863, when Madame Clico was 86, everyone in France watched with horror as the dreaded phylloxera insect infestation began to decimate vineyards all over France, practically ending all grape production in France, ultimately, uh, later than this period. But hooray for American rootstock. It was resistant to the bugs, and it actually saved France's wine industry closer to the end of the century. But the phylloxera insect began its depredation of France while Madame Clicquot was still alive. She outlived most of her family, um, unfortunately for them. I mean, (laughs) fortunately for her, I guess she had a long life. It soon came down to just her great granddaughter, Anne, of whom she was extraordinarily fond and fully intended to leave her her fortune. Ultimately, this beloved descendant would become a duchess. And I wish she'd seen it, but she did not. On July 29th, 1866, after several years of a near constant stream of people coming to visit her in her grand chateau and visiting with her and she visiting with them, the Grand Dame of Champagne passed away at the age of 89. She's buried in the Reims Northern Cemetery, a place which I may be able to see here pretty soon. Ultimately, Count Louis did get his hands on a considerable amount of her assets. He was the heir because his wife had passed away. I don't want to get into too much detail, but he did have a brush with execution during the Franco-Prussian War, but he was able to slip quietly away into exile. And then when it was over, return to live his final years and pass away at Hotel Ponsardin. There's a circle for you. Moving on from the life of Barb Nicole herself, just a few highlights in 1877, 
the famous label came into being. The famous color of orange slash yellow that in the trademark application refers to it as, quote, the color of the egg yolks of the corn-fed hens of the town of Bress. But you and I know it as Pantone 137C. (laughs) They have successfully defended their exclusive right to use that color commercially as recently as 2012. Other copyrighted colors, Tiffany Blue, T-Mobile Magenta, Barbie Pink, Cadbury Purple, thanks Queen Victoria, and <laughs> UPS Brown, though not that I could tell Fort Nimmin, Mason, O'Donnell. I could be wrong. Oh. But I didn't see that in the trademarked colors list. Interesting. In 1887, the region of Champagne won the exclusive right to their name. Champagne shall refer to wine exclusively produced in and sourced from, closing a loophole, the Champagne region. And it was upheld in court cases from 1905 to as recently as 2021, when some Spanish restaurants wished to call themselves a version of the term Champagne and they were stopped. I was so curious about this. I went to our local wine store and the Americans brands, they have champagne on the label, but it says California style champagne or American style champagne. Technically, for a bottle of sparkling wine to be labeled champagne, it has to be made in Champagne, France and produced using the method champenoise. If that bottle is produced using the exact same method anywhere else, it must carry a different name and the method does too. There was a treaty to end World War I that had a little sentence in there that was supposed to handle something between France and Germany. And the result was the use of champagne on sparkling wine labels was curtailed in all the nations that were party to the treaty. The United States signed the treaty, but never ratified the treaty. But no one cared because prohibition, as far as anyone was concerned, was about to put California winemakers out of business. So no one acted when they could have reversed that decision. Uh And now there's the loophole. There you go. Interesting. Thanks. The more you know. Okay, how about this? In 2010, some divers off the coast of Finland found 168 bottles of champagne in a Baltic Sea shipwreck. They were identified by the corks, and some of them were marked Clico Verle and had a comment on it. And the thing is, those bottles had been stored in near ideal conditions in cold temperatures and low light and high pressure. And so when they brought them up, some of the divers tasted them because menfolk are cray cray. And they had it, I mean, it was like wet sheep and horrible stuff at the beginning. But once it aerated out, just for a few minutes, they decided it tasted like grilled, smoky leather. It was quite delicious. Sounds gross to me. (laughs) Um, Other people didn't agree with the grossness. The bottles have been auctioned off for as high as $100,000. Veuve Clicquot, the corporation, has successfully retained three of the bottles for itself. And not only that, in 2014, Wolf Clicquot buried 350 more bottles in a metal cage in the Baltic Sea to see what it would do to the aging process. To which I say Barb Nicole would be very proud of them. I think so. They are so excited to see what aging at pressure, like the same pressure on the outside of the champagne bottles that was on the inside. They're so excited for the result of this experience. And now it's time for media. Starting with books, as we do. 
the biography. It's the newest one. It's the most comprehensive. It's called The Widow Clico, The Story of a Champagne Empire and the Woman Who Ruled It by Tilar J. Mazeo. It's not horribly long. It's just on her. There's not a lot about the men around her. You know how sometimes biographies about the women that we're studying, the biographies are full of the men's stories Mm -hmm. that were part of their life. And we're like, no, no, we just want to skip through that. So that's what I really liked about this one. And at the end, there are a few recipes. <laughs> what do you know? Yeah, she, the author had had them at the Clico Vineyard with Clico wine pairings. What? I'm going to look at this book. Where are the recipes? There's so many notes, by the way, like practically a third of it I know. is yeah, it's in, um... very thorough. It, it's after the, it's at, like the last thing. Oh, I see. Turbo poached in verbena. With wheat noodles, wild asparagus, and eel. Oh, my. Well. Well, I will say we are having a meal when we go to the Vuvclico Vineyards. So I'm wondering if any of these recipes will be on our plates. Interesting. I'll have to report back on that. I know. Yeah. All right. Other books that I read in preparation, um, Don Cladstrip and Petey Cladstrip wrote Champagne, How the World's Most Glamorous Wine Triumphed Over War and Hard Times. And that is a pretty comprehensive We've actually touched on a lot of aspects of history's champagne, from Pomery to the arch enemy Moet, um, <laughs> who in himself must have been very charming. He had a lot of friends and devotees also, but nevertheless was the big business rival. Also a book of what ha- I got a little into what on earth was happening after the revolution. There was so much that didn't settle in France. And there's a book called The New Regime by Isser Ovalik, and the subtitle is Transformations of the French Civic Order. So I loved that one because it kind of helped me understand the environment in which she was trying to grow her business. Mm -hmm. And then also, there are infinite amount of biographies of Napoleon, but I read Napoleon, A Life by Andrew Roberts. There is another book, uh, Facts About Champagne by Henri Vizitelli. It was, it's the one that I read. So there was illustrations, you know, I always like it when there's (laughs) illustrations in a book. There is a very tempting cover if you're looking for Vuvclico books. It's kind of a flapper flying on a champagne cork. It's called Champagne Widows, the First Woman of Champagne, Vuvclico by Rebecca Rosenberg. I was like, yeah, this looks great. Great cover. I started reading it. It is historical fiction. I just want to throw that out there. You're not reading this as research. You're just reading it for entertainment. I did enjoy it after I got over the hurt that it wasn't a nonfiction book. And the author clearly did her research. But I just wanted to point out that there's this really cool cover out there and it's a historical fiction. Mm. I know. Uh, you can obviously start at the epicenter, vuvclico.com. There's information on the champagne, the House of Clico, the different types of champagne they sell, their annual polo match, which curiously was in New Jersey. Uh, and <laughs> okay. And um, they have a little store with a $75 cardboard box that unfolds into an ice box. I think it's like coated, like cardboard, but it's coated with a plastic. So you can, I mean, it's going to get wet. It's a nice bucket. I think you can reuse it. Yeah, it was interesting. I did not buy it. I mean, I'm only tempted by so many things. Well done for the resistance. (laughs) Thank you. So there's also, well, I'll point you to an article about that shipwreck and the dudes that tasted the hundreds of year old champagne. 
also about the coup of 18th and 19th Brumaire that Napoleon just basically walked in and took France of an afternoon. Um, And also my one and only recommendation so far of a Wikipedia article. I am obsessed (laughs) with the French Republican calendar and the fact that it named all these things. I'm going to look. What day is today? We're recording this on September, what, 8th? Yep. Okay. So I got to go to where it's hard to know because the year starts in such a weird place. It's summer. Hmm. September 8th. Oh, we are on the day Noisette, which means hazelnut. Oh, I like it. So um, take a time to go to the article. I'm going to link you to and look up your own personal important dates and see what you get. Some are better than others. (laughs) Against my usual judgment, I did listen to two podcasts about Barb Nicole because they were coming from people who had experience in wine. And these two, I thought, were just delightful. One was called Fizzgig Sparkling Wine Stories. The host is great. She's a winemaker in England at Ambriel Vineyards. It was a short series that ended in 2020, but I listened to all of it because I really liked her. And the other was an interview with um, Tilar Mazeo, who was the author of the biography about her. It was on a podcast called Grape Minds. And these hosts were a delight. They were not pretentious. They talked just like us. I think it was, I really enjoyed it. And Tilar Mazeo was just charming. She's an educator and has written a series of biographies. And this is just one of them. And I really, really enjoyed listening to her. So that's Grape Minds. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yep. All right. So I have two artistic endeavors to promote. One is called Madame Clicquot, a revolutionary musical. Um, They have recently released a cast album. I guess it only has six songs on it. What do they used to call them? EP. (laughs) The only thing I can remember is this one. Well, it goes, forgive me for feeling the weight on my shoulders. (laughs) And everybody's like... La, 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 you know, <laughs> behind her. Um, so that part stuck with me. So the cast recording is good. You can actually see them recording it pretty good. You can watch uh, large parts of the, I don't know, can you watch the whole thing on YouTube? I don't know, because I thought you were talking about Scarlet Pimpernel. Oh, I'm not talking about the Scarlet Pimpernel. I'm talking about, oh, the Scarlet Pimpernel. Did I talk about that on this show? No, you didn't. You told me. And we don't usually talk oh. about them in advance, but you just said, you know, you might want to watch Scarlet Pimpernel. And so I lined it up on my queue on whatever streaming service and I never got around to watching it. I am just not sure. I, you know what? I can recommend it with my perspective from the 90s. I'm going to recommend the Scarlet Pimpernel, but I am really not sure how it holds up. Because <laughs> Sorry, I didn't watch it. Well, okay. I'll just tell you the the premise and then you tell me if you think it holds up. I don't know. It's worth watching until the point where you get irritated and turn it off. So (laughs) the premise is that a a series of young British noblemen who are bored, I don't know, second sons or whatever with nothing else to do, decide that for adventure's sake, they're going to go into France and hand rescue the aristocracy from the revolutionaries. They're going to go spirit people out of the country. And one of their techniques to do this is they go to France and pretend to be foppish dandies Mm -hmm. with no interest in anything but fashion. That's as far as I'm going with that. And 
therefore, you know, infiltrate themselves into the, you know, new regime and then are able to get people out of there. Oh, interesting. But there's a lot of references to not being ladies' men and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's the part that falls apart a little. Yeah. It did bring the house down in the uh, early 90s, though. (laughs) I was busy. (laughs) So, uh, you know, cautionary tale about that. I just really have only a vague recollection of of how that went. It just kind of stuck in my mind because it was people going to rescue people from the French Revolution. But no, that's not the one I meant. I meant the Veuve Clicquot musical. Also, speaking back to Veuve Clicquot, there is a new movie coming out. In fact, may come out the same day this show comes out. Isn't that accidental timing for you? Oh, it's Uh, totally accidental, though. It really, and genuinely, is totally (laughs) accidental. So um, there is a movie called The Widow Clicquot, Starring the actress Haley Bennett, which actually made me laugh. The first time I ever saw Haley Bennett is the Drew Barrymore and Hugh Grant movie called Music and Lyrics. And literally, right. I think the first thing I ever saw Haley Bennett say was, Welcome to Booty Town. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah. Because your booty is the way into his heart. <laughs> Like, that's the song. I bet she has no lines like that in Vov Clico. Oh, no. My favorite line of that movie that's not a singing line is, I want to show you the roof. It's upstairs. (laughs) I'm like, okay. I mean, I love music and lyrics, by the way. It's like what I call a macaroni and cheese movie. It's where you're you're feeling away and you just need a little coziness, like Sliding Doors is another movie like that. Music and lyrics is a movie that if you're feeling... A, a little in your feelings and you want to just get out that the pint of ice cream or in my case because i don't i'm not a sweet food person the macaroni and cheese and you want to sit there with a cat on your lap and just whatever a movie you've seen a thousand times before music and lyrics is really cute and it's like that and i would be very interested to know what other people's macaroni and cheese movies are oh well i, I will tell you mine okay <laughs> okay there's two one is ever after which ah. i think is very much a I don't like macaroni and cheese. Okay, let's call it a vitamin H movie. Happiness. Vitamin happiness, yes. Vitamin happiness. Invented vitamin happiness. Vitamin H, yes. Um, Ever after. And okay, this is almost embarrassing, but Fool's Gold with Kate Hudson and uh, Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah, it's not like the greatest movie, but it's, I don't know. You know, these things are just personal. You're like... You watched it, you found it entertaining. And if it's ever on, you just watch it from wherever you are. Last Holiday with Queen Latifah. That's another one. (gasps) Oh, that one is so good. So good. Pule Chapatulis. I love her so much. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that. So um, I'm very interested to know it's actually that movie is premiering right now, like as we are recording at the Toronto Film Festival. So there's no like nobody's seen it yet. So there's nothing out there about it yet, really. Right. Um, but by the time this show goes out, critics will have seen it. So I'm interested to know what they think. I don't know anything about it yet. So I hope um, I hope Haley Bennett gets some good reviews. I know that the, the story is something to celebrate. I mean, she she took this place from very little to something magical. So right. uh, and she didn't really do it with a lot of guidance. You know, mm-hmm. she went on instinct and grit, really, and and some daring. Yeah. Well, as far as story arcs go, there was so much failure. You know, when other people would have been forget it, I'm done. She just kept going, especially when she had the wherewithal to simply just stop. Right. There was no 
financial necessity to any of this. (laughs) That's amazing to me. So it was all just sheer passion for what she was doing and um, just the responsibility. It was great. We've come to the end of our coverage and of our, as Susan says, fangirling. (laughs) <laughs> of uh, Barb Nicole Clicquot. And I've never actually heard you use that term before without rolling your eyes. Tell me, did you? I was only quoting. I had air quotes. <laughs> air quotes is not eye rolling. <laughs> and in closing, how about this quote from Barb Nicole herself, written in a letter to her great-grandchild, Anne. My dear, I'm going to tell you a secret. You more than anyone resemble me, you who have such audacity. It's a precious quality that's been very useful to me in the course of my long life to dare things before others. Look around you. This chateau, I can be bolder than you realize. The world is in perpetual motion and we must invent the things of tomorrow. One must go before the others to be determined and exacting and let your intelligence direct your life. Act with audacity. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends about us or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. We will be going off to visit Londinium, as they say, and then on to Paris. We're very excited about that. We will be posting a travelogue upon our return. The song in the middle is Champagne by Let Mojo, and the song at the end is That's What Hopes Are For by Emma Wallace. See you next time. I appreciate your concern when you say I've got a lot to learn. You say one day the piper will have to get paid and all good things have got to end. And I have been on a good thing bend, you say, you know, it's best to keep my expectations low, but I've got my head in the